Welcome back, everyone, to the Reset Salon podcast. This is Ed McGuire with uh, Julie Albright and Brian Hayashi. And in this series, we've looked to bring some of the most intelligent and inspiring conversations to our community of, of listeners and participants in our salons. And this week, our topic is going to be the ethical path forward. We have been discussing some of the impact of AI, some of the ethics of AI specifically, but now we're going to we're going to broaden things out and we have a very special guest with us this uh, for this episode. It's Deb Donig, who's an assistant professor of English literature at Cal Poly, but more than that, she's the co-founder of the Cal Poly Ethical Technology Initiative. So we're going to get a chance to uh, to ask her about that and go go into that and she's also the host of the Technically Human podcast where she's uh, she's also talking with major thinkers and writers and and uh, technologists about the relationship between humans and the technologies that we create. So do have this again this we we're at the nexus of of humanity, technology, culture and evolution and in this unique time of accelerated change and and uh, and transformation. So this we're really looking forward to this conversation. So with that, let me turn it over to Julie to uh, to set the stage for our conversation. Thanks, Ed. Well, my co-host and friend, Mr. Brian Hayashi, likes to say quite frequently, and you might hear him say it again today, I wouldn't be surprised, that we've been used to living with impunity, doing whatever we want. Yet COVID has changed that. It's changed the perception that we can do what we want, when we want, limiting our actions our movements, our associations. Likewise, I think companies, businesses, the tech industry in many ways felt the same freedom, if you will, to go about their business with a certain level of impunity, often asking forgiveness rather than permission. The Airbnbs of the world, challenging notions of what it meant to be a hotel or to host people for a fee. The Ubers of the world, challenging the notion of what it meant to be a taxi and putting to the test the very financially lucrative medallion system for cities. This reset moment by COVID has given all of us pause and all of us, whether we be individuals or businesses, a moment to step back and question what we're doing. When I started thinking about this topic, I immediately recalled Zuckerberg of Facebook saying the mantra that was inside Facebook for many years, move fast and break things. The mantra fits so well, I think, the ethos of Silicon Valley doing whatever they want, moving fast and breaking things, be they old ways of doing things, established relationships, codes, even laws sometimes acting with impunity. The word impunity comes from the Latin roots im for not plus puna or punishment, a root which also produced the word pain. Impunity then is the freedom from punishment or pain. The tech sector being young and brash, acting with impunity, acting like imps. Imps are little devils. An imp is also a mischievous child. All that money sloshing around Silicon Valley have these imps, they've given the imps an implicit sense that what they were doing was right. 
that innovation is right, even if it breaks things. And make no mistake, Silicon Valley has been a purview of the young. A few years back at an event held at Stanford, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg famously told the audience, I want to stress the importance of being young and technical. Young people are just smarter. So because they were young, they may have gotten away with being imps. They may have been seen by others as mischievous children. If they broke something well, that's what kids do. But here we are now in this reset moment, having time to sit around, quiet time, lots of it, time to think, to reflect, to take stock. We look back and we see some of these things that big tech has done. Maybe it allowed outside forces to come in and illegally interfere with our election process. Maybe on the sliding scale of right and wrong, our emotions have been manipulated in a mass experiment of emotional contagion on social media. Maybe we were watched or listened to or our faces were recognized when we walked into a store. Maybe as the imps of Silicon Valley moved fast and broke things, what they broke was our trust. A new study just came out this past week, a famous study now done every year on trust. It's called the Edelman Trust Barometer. It measures people's trust of industries ranging from banking to energy to technology. Technology, our love of the Apple brand and others, it's always been on the most trusted end of the spectrum but not this time. This time, the tides have turned. Suddenly, trust in the technology sector is down. The largest declines from 7 to 10% were in the US and France. People were worried about tech doing wrong. They were concerned about things in 2020, like the pace of technology is going too fast, they said. They were worried that technology will change our ability to discern reality. They said technology will make it impossible to know if what people are seeing or hearing is real. They're worried that the government doesn't understand emerging technologies enough to regulate them effectively. The tech industry aren't the imps they were in the mid or early 2000s. It's maturing now. Mark Zuckerberg has matured. And all of us, as we sit back and see the unintended consequences of connectivity unfold as we have, now I think many of us, individuals, businesses, governments, have begun to think about techs and tech companies acting with impunity, moving fast, and breaking things. And maybe what we don't want to break is trust. So with that, today, on the Reset Salon podcast, we'll explore this very important theme of acting with impunity, acting like imps, or acting in a way where the ethics of what we do matters. As a friend and colleague of mine said earlier today, if we can't trust, we stoke fears, and fears lead to violence. So in this way, acting ethically, I see it, as a form of risk management for both individuals and companies. And as consumer trust in tech wanes, it becomes more important perhaps than ever before 
that these tech companies gain back the trust of their customers by acting in ways that are transparently ethical. In the era of cancel culture now, ethical behavior becomes an important aspect of risk management that hasn't really been factored in in the manner of other risk assessments in most companies, even to the point of doing business or frequenting or otherwise supporting someone who may be adjacent somehow or supporting somehow someone doing something unethical. It's a new dimension of risk assessment for companies so they can be sure that one of the things broken isn't the trust of their customers. So we're gonna be talking about all these ideas today as we try to find our way back to an ethical path forward. I'm super glad you're all here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation and I'm tossing it over to Brian. Boy, thanks, Julie. I guess I get to act uh, maybe not with impunity, but hopefully without a lot of pain from my uh, co-hosts here. One, one of the things that I picked up, uh, having, having followed technology for as long as I have, as a little bit of a, of a backgrounder, uh, my first experience with uh, computers uh, was, was uh, working with military companies and the earlier versions of uh, supercomputers. And then when, when, we, when the company I worked for took Netscape public back in 1994, we could already see at that time a lot of the trends that had governed the, the once upon a time new media computer industries, then the optical storage CD-ROM industries, the issues that, that had kind of surfaced before kind of reasserted themselves later. So whereas maybe we look at Facebook and think, oh, they're acting unethically. The reality, at least from my perspective, is that these are echoes of, of behaviors that have happened before. And so in that context, I kind of view the, the development of technology as being this kind of continuum. So since from, from 1994 to the current day, I feel like so much of the world has been about the idea of of a solitary person, like how do we how do we enable new forms of immediate gratification for people, imagining people in the center of the universe, business models that were just about one person. And I think one of the things that's really exciting right now, with first with uh, with Facebook, and now we're seeing with Clubhouse, is this idea that that new technology platforms make it easier for us to work together, to work alongside each other without having to check in with each other all the time. And, I, and, and so to me, that is a evolution that really began back in the, you know, thousands of years ago with religion, where the only knowable truth was that of some supreme being somewhere that was unknowable, untouchable, to this idea of a country where you have a ruling class that knew better and just anyone else better just STFU to where we are right now, where we see this development of men of a thousand flowers of these ideas of what could happen. So you have Amazon versus, you know, the, these ranked startups doing new things. A, a kid with a credit card and an idea can do amazing things. And, and I think what, what I see happening here is this idea that ethics far from being an absolute, that is, is really about this idea that in this vague new world, as we think, as we figure out new and brilliant ways of being able to work with each other, that ethics is about this idea that we can be working on new stuff together and still be treated fairly. 
still be treated like, like other people, that, that if I'm a person of color, I can be treated the same as a, as a person that has traditionally been afforded white privilege, but in this new, in this new regime, I can express new rules, new ways of, of doing things. And the power of being able to operate with impunity in a regime that treats people of color the same way as, 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 as white people without relying on some government to issue an edict, some magical force that, that makes all of these things possible. If a group of people can get together and make that kind of a, a regime possible, that they can articulate a system of ethics that people that resonate with people, that's when I think magic can happen. So this is Brian Hayashi, and I am done talking. I, you know, it's it's interesting. You guys brought up a couple of really interesting points. First, the idea of the imps. I, I think impish behavior is is wonderful when imps don't you know don't have a lot of power and they're just uh, you know knocking a you know knocking a cover over a couple of side tables or you know throwing spitballs in in the classroom. As long as there are you know as long as there's a framework for order and and someone is uh, you know keeping control of things. But obviously when you know that that behavior or that the you know the ir- we'll call it just sort of irresponsible jejun behavior is powered with monopoly-like uh, control of an industry or information flow, that becomes a, a completely different dynamic entirely. I also wanted to uh, expand on, um, Brian made a point about evolution, and I really love this parallel that Kevin Kelly had uh, had spoken about, in, or I guess there is a parallel with in what technology wants, the idea that as natural evolution gave rise to you know, to primates and, you know, to homo sapiens. And, and as, you know, we as a species evolved into our cultures that now our culture itself is evolving into technology, which is a, a natural extension of human culture in all of its varieties. And the idea that that, that technology itself may evolve with its own intent um, without having guardrails, I think is, you know, is, is a great concern. And, and Julie talked about move fast and break things. I was thinking of John Taplin's book about what technology's done to the music business and all of the, you know, all of the middle-class livings that have now been eviscerated by digitization of music and, and, you know, not, you know, pointing fingers at any, any, any one party, but, but that's an example of what can happen, the, the unintended consequences of technology. And you looked at some ideas or frameworks to guide AI, like the Asilomar principles and, and, you know, Matthew James Bailey's ideas as well. Um, people are thinking about it, but I think the real story here tonight is that we get a chance to talk to somebody who's involved with this, you know, with the, uh, this institute, the Center for Ethical Technology. And uh, or the ethical technology initiative, and that Deb uh, would love to, you know, get your thoughts on, you know, what you think of when when we talk about ethical technology, and and share some of your thoughts and and what you're working on at uh, as part of your work. Sure, thanks, thanks, Ed, and thanks, Julie, and thanks, Brian, for having me on here. You know, I I love this kind of question because one of the things that I talk about as a professor of English literature with my students is that you know before we can create anything, we first have to imagine it. Right? There's a there's an imaginative realm that we enter into before we get into the act 
of actually building something. So I think it's really important for us to investigate the realm of the imagination and to think about how we imagine, what stories we know, what kinds of things we have already in our mind as templates about how to build. And, and that becomes, I think, the, the protocol for us building anything. Now, the other thing I like to tell my students is the word technology. We've already talked about the etymology of impunity, but here's another etymological root for you. Uh, the word technology itself comes from the Greek word techne, and techne uh, actually means art or craft art or craft. And so what we, I think, want to keep in mind when we're talking about technology is that typically technology gets thrust into the realm that the most new, the newest, most most kind of cool, newfangled thing. Um, particularly, I think, when we think about technology, we typically think about the digital. But I think what's important to remember that the book was a technology at one time. It was a new technology. It was actually contested technology. People thought that books were moving too fast and breaking things, right? There was a big controversy around that. And when I I think of technology, I certainly think about the digital. In fact, my route to thinking about ethical technology was initially through the digital. But the conversations that I'm really interested in right now, as my thinking on the ethics of technology has evolved, is really thinking about kind of defining the contours of what technology is far beyond the digital. For instance, I'm hosting a podcast uh, that comes out this week on disability, and I'm talking to Paralympians who run on blades. That is a realm of technology. It's, of course, not digital technology, but the ways in which we build and build around our bodies are certainly questions deeply consumed with technological capacity and also frequently ethical capacity. Yesterday, I recorded a podcast with a leading scholar on carcinogens and the relationship between carcinogens and cancer. So here we want to think about the biomedical and, and the bioethical in our realm of thinking about the ethics of technology and, and where this these conversations tend to go are really in the context of when we imagine and when we build, we build and we imagine with our bodies and our experiences in mind. I frequently like to give the example uh, of the pilot seat, which is something I talk to my students about. There was a sociologist when I was doing my graduate work at UCLA who was interested in the profession of becoming a pilot and why it was so skewed masculine. And there are a lot of theories around why that profession was so skewed masculine. One was that, you know, historically women have not wanted to travel. And so therefore they have not chosen that profession. But of course, that theory is bunk. Uh, there are a lot of female flight attendants. So that theory clearly does not have traction. Another theory was that being a pilot is a very masculine uh profession because most of the pilots or a large portion of them come out of the Air Force, which aggregates a large male population there as well. That theory was thrown out as well. The study really isolated one single factor that was more significant than any other factor in deciding who became a pilot. And it was, it was the design of the pilot seat in the cockpit. Now, why would that be so significant in determining this massive kind of sociological question? Well, because the design of the pilot seat is not a neutral design. It is a carefully engineered space in the cockpit so that the person sitting in that seat can have maximum agility, be able to see over the dashboard with maximum perspective, be able to reach certain controls with maximum agility. And a woman would sit in that seat, women's bodies oftentimes being uh, on average, of course, there's no such thing as an average body, but on average, slightly smaller than a male body, they would feel uncomfortable in that seat they would not feel as agile as their seat as they would look over and see that their male counterparts were. And of course, we all select, I think, in, in choosing what we want to do, things that we feel that we have a talent for, 
things that we think we might be good at. And if you look around, you see that other people are better at something than you, then you kind of opt out. And that's what was happening. So I think that this brings us to a central point, which is that it's not just about who wants to become a pilot. It's about who designs the seat. And if engineers design the seat, and if engineers are male, they're designing for their body. And so the entire kind of spectrum of systems that are at work and at play from the building and from the imagining up go into having these massive sociological consequences. And of course, you know, from my perspective, we all design from our perspective and for our bodies and for our experiences. That is in itself morally neutral. But if we know that, then it becomes incredibly important to think about including a large array of perspectives, geographical, intellectual, cultural, racial, gender, into the process of imagining and into the process of designing. And in all of those realms, in the craft, in the imagination, in the art of design, and to the actual production of design, I think that where I have landed is that with any realm of ethical technology, we really have to be as inclusive as possible, that there is a link between equity and ethics, and that it is only when we have a equitable infrastructure that we will start to have a more ethical sphere of technological production. So how do you think about designing, uh, I would say, guidelines, guide rails, foundational principles to you know, allow, I think you referred to industrial design, but when you start thinking about, you know, all sorts of applications, business processes, and the, and the interfaces that, that draw users into, you know, you know, into a system, how are you thinking about the way that a, you know, designer or a design team can incorporate a broader view and a, a broader perspective, you know, rather looking from the perspective of, of a different end user than they might be thinking of, you know, for instance. Well, I think the word here that I, I would want to concentrate on is empathic design. Empathic design refers to a design that has the interests and the utility of the user uh, in mind in the act of creation. There's a couple of things that I want to mention here. The first is that if you want an ethical product and an ethical culture of technology, which is equally important to the product, in my view, one thing that I have learned after talking to many people and after watching many of these processes play out is that you cannot add on ethics as a prosthetic after you're done with everything else. So you can't say, here's the gigantic digital company that I've built here. Now let's think as we have built it, you know, uh-oh, we're running into these things. Uh, maybe perhaps we should bring in an AI ethicist. You have really have to start from the ground up. It has to be built into the DNA, into the infrastructure. And I have a couple of companies that I, I think are doing that. For instance, there's a uh, again, we're going to get out of the realm of the digital here because I think that the digital uh, has a lot of conversation around it. So I want to kind of widen the scope of that conversation. I recently spoke to a designer who has designed the world's first convertible heel. Now, why would a convertible heel be either ethical or technological? Well, if you wear high heels, which 50% of the population plus or minus frequently does, you know that 
there are, it's not just the foot pain that you deal with after wearing a pair of high heels that has been poorly designed or has not considered the architecture as part of what needs to be kind of symbiotic with the, with the human body wearing it. It's also the fact that if you're wearing those shoes, there are places that you don't go on the campus. For example, if I, if I'm wearing high heels and there's a lecture that I really want to go to, but it's across campus and I've worn heels that day, maybe I don't go to that lecture because I think I am going to have to walk in these heels and I, I can't, I can't go to, I can't go to that lecture. It's going to take me too long or I'm going to have to be, you know, in pain and I, I'd rather not go. Now, why do high heels have this kind of painful infrastructure? Unnecessarily is the answer. They have this kind of infrastructure because for the past 200 years, mostly men have been designing shoes and they have been uh, designing shoes for a kind of aesthetic point of view rather than the point of view of the biometrics of the person wearing it. And of course, this is a technological issue. Architecture, design, figuring out how the different kind of uh, textiles work together. Um, these are issues that engage uh, engineers on every single level from the kind of mocking up of something and design to the actual production and the utility of materials. So what this person did is she went, she said, why is there not a convertible heel? The answer that she got was, well, it's not impossible. She said, well, actually, maybe it is possible. And she didn't know that much about heels, but she knew a lot about kind of uh, engineering and she was able to do this. This is, I think, ethical because it is equitable. It is about who can move in what kinds of ways with what kinds of freedoms. And I also think that it is deeply a question of being empathic in the way that we design. It's also a question of who does the designing. Who does the designing? That matters. So there have been a number of initiatives in, uh, particularly among, I, I would say, a recent generation of companies to incorporate social responsibility into the into governance. For instance, uh, there's this the one 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 concept where you know employees dedicate one percent of their time and and one percent of the equity and one percent of the profits are are donated to uh, charitable causes. Although that doesn't have impact on the products themselves. Um, but also there's a growing focus on, you know, ESG and, and sustainable growth and, and tying corporate mission in with SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals out of the UN. We'd love to get your thoughts on how the, the broader, you know, some of these broader concepts of a responsible mission can be extrapolated and reduced and tied in, I guess, right, with a smaller, more focused empathic design? How would that guide a, um, you know, the design of products, for instance? Yeah, this is a really good and, and interesting, very complex question. Um, the first part of it would be that uh, over and over again, I hear you can do good and you can do well. I think that folks oftentimes deal with things like mission drift being coming beholden to the stock market or to shareholders, rather than to creating the best, most equitable, most ethical design, that's a real issue. And I think that the, the problem extends far beyond the sphere of production of technology. In this case, it extends to the sphere of venture capital. It extends to the sphere of who gets funded and why, and the model of kind of capital that has emerged around technology. That is a whole issue. That is a major issue that, that needs to be addressed if we're going to talk about technology, because of course, uh, profits are a big part of that. The big part of deciding what gets designed and how it gets designed and whether or not ethics is included in that mix. But I would also say that some of the most impressive 
pieces of technology, the most valuable pieces of technology that I have seen come out are pieces of technology that are designed for equity. And I think that, you know, I'll give you an example of one of them. Uh, I was talking with somebody who just invested multi, multi-million dollars of venture capital to put motion sensors on wheelchairs. Motion sensors on wheelchairs. That is such an obvious multi-million dollar idea. If you have a wheelchair, then you don't want to hit things as you are wheeling over the terrain that you are trying to cross. Now, why hasn't anybody thought to put sensors on wheelchairs before? Well, probably because there are not a lot of people with disabilities in the sphere of technological production. So if you build inclusively, it is not just that you are creating some sort of social good, which of course you are. It's also that you're solving incredibly valuable problems. And these are incredibly valuable problems to solve. And I think of so many things that fit into that category. Spanx. Spanx is an amazing technology. The person who invented Spanx was turned away by, I think, the first 20 venture capital firms that she presented it to, or something along that significant lines, uh, because the people in those positions, mostly male, didn't recognize the value of that technology. This is a multi-million dollar company now. Now, I'll give you one example of, I think, a a solution to this from the perspective of finance and capital. Uh, There's a a fund out there, and I'll call them out by name, The Fund, run by Scott Hartley. And what they have decided to do is that they have decided to put on every single investment team a gender-equitable group of investors. So, for example, in every single team, there are two Uh, male investors to female investors. They have no kind of moral maxim or ethical maxim beyond, we just want to have, you know, an equally, uh, equally divided um, investment team in every single team. And they end up investing in something like 40% more women led companies and female entrepreneurs, not because they are trying to do some sort of social good, but because who you have looking at a problem will oftentimes determine whether or not solving that problem is considered to be valuable. And so I think that, you know, these kinds of models are models that don't say we we need to make less money to do good, or we need to overturn uh, our, our interest in capital gains in order to, to, to create an ethical product. What they say is that actually there's a lot of uh, problems that we can solve and, and money to be made. We can do good and do well. I, I love what you're saying here. Uh, years ago, Julie Albright and I would be looking at these new startup companies and say, you know, I'll bet that founding team didn't have a single woman on it because of some of these of, of these insights that seem blindingly obvious that they were missing. And in, in today's uh, news, there was something about uh, a Robin Hood trader that had incurred this $800,000 tax bill uh, from, from the IRS because of the lack of knowledge about something. And, and what it reminds me of is that sometimes that people in, in an industry have so many blind spots that they do not know what's going on, that, that they, they do not, that it's impossible to discern all of the blind spots and the scope of what that means. And so when you talk about uh, innovations like the, the convertible heel, to me, that's a kind of a social signal that tells me here's someone that's working on an important product. And you may not necessarily agree, but the people that are guided to that, that are working on that product, the people that are investing in that product, the people that are advising that product, 
maybe if these, if, if you have similar thoughts, maybe those are people that you should be checking out. Because at the end of the day, when Julie was talking about being able to work with impunity, I think one of the biggest challenges for the 21st century is how do we get all of these women that have been churned out of a male dominated culture back into productive fiduciary roles where they are able to act with impunity and not have to worry about whatever drummed them out in the first place. Because I feel like there's a lot of intellectual capital, a lot of intellectual horsepower that's waiting to be used. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the concept of, of VC blind spots, because that's, you know, we've looked at the, you know, the underinvestment in, for instance, female founders. And then you look at the, the data shows that the success rate is much higher. I, you know, as somebody who's worked in finance, I mean, I, you know, f finance and VC are, you know, rife with groupthink of people who, you know, believe that they're all the smartest people in the, in the room and they're the, you know, and, and they're original thinkers, but actually there, there is a lot more of a, you know, there's a lot more herd mentality and risk aversion than I think a lot of them would ever admit. So I, I, I really love to hear these creative solutions to, you know, how do you open up solving problems for half of humanity? I mean, I think it's, you know, that should be a first principle. You did bring up a couple things um, that I wanted to follow. One, I do think the, the role of technology in empowering people who are, who have disabilities is, is just amazing. And I wasn't aware of the sensor on the wheelchair, but a, a couple of things have, have jumped out at me in the past. One is the use of, of additive manufacturing or 3D printing technology for prosthetics that have, that can be, you know, perfectly fit or also uh, that, you know, there could be, you know, fashionable with real fashion statements. I think that's helped to, you know, destigmatize uh, prosthetics and, in, in, uh, and make them actually a fashion accessory, you know, for, for, for people that, that want that option. Um, the other thing, is that, you know, for people who have severe disabilities, you know, blindness or even, you know, people who were really physically in incapacitated, there was a there was a wonderful TED talk by uh, the composer Todd Macover uh, several years ago where he showed a technology that had worked with a patient who was uh, severely disabled with cerebral palsy that allowed him to compose his own music. And it was the most unbelievable experience to see that creativity and that soul that had been locked in a, you know, in a body that was, you know, that lacked those physical capabilities, to, you know, to express, you know, to engage in musical expression. And I think it is one of the amazing things that technology can do in a, on a positive note is to unlock that creativity for people who are, who lack these, you know, who lack skills, who are, you know, who have disabilities, who are, you know, marginalized and would love to get your thoughts on some of the, you know, some of the real positive outcomes uh, that, you know, that you see that an ethical, you know, that an eth ethical technology framework, you know, may be able to unlock. And I, as I ask, you know, what are you hopeful about? And, you know, what are some of the things that make you optimistic? Well, I'll start off answering that question by just giving you two, two terms. The first term is audiobooks. The second term is the keyboard. Both of these technologies uh, were initially designed as adaptive technologies for people with disabilities. I listen to maybe three audiobooks a week. I use the keyboard pretty much everywhere I go, right? Right now. So I think that one thing that we can learn from this is that when you make things better for one group that has been historically marginalized, you tend to make something better for everybody. Audiobooks were de developed for people who had visual impairments, blindness, for example, or severe myopia. 
And I think that my life has been made, made better through audiobooks. There are so many adaptive technologies that have entered the mainstream from their specific origin as, as a utility for a disability. And I would encourage those people who are investing or hiring to hire people with a perspective outside of the mainstream. Find somebody with a disability, ask them what problems they encounter on a daily basis, not just to be inclusive, which of course it is, but also because these are designs and ways of thinking and orienting ourselves to our environment that will create technologies that will make the world Better. I think that whether it is a pavement that has the kind of infrastructure that somebody who has a physical disability can maneuver around, or whether it is, you know, a, a assistive learning device like an, an audio adaptable uh, form of content that can help somebody, I think that we make the, the world better from that perspective. And you're not going to have the perspective that there's a problem that needs to be solved until we start including people in there. You know, I'll give you an example of another company that I see taking off right now. Uh, a friend of mine who is Black, has melanated skin, started a company after for skincare for, uh, for specifically Black skin after realizing and doing some research that Three to 5% of all uh, testing done on skin products is done on people with melanated skin. So what does that mean? It means that treatments for things like rosacea, things like acne, oftentimes include products that have whitening, whitening products in them. Obviously not a good thing for melanated skin. He started a skincare company specifically for black skin where they test on melanated skin. Uh, this is an incredibly valuable problem to solve. And I think that when he does this kind of research, he opens up doors for us to think more capaciously about how we design skincare to create better skincare for a larger swath of people. Again, a very valuable as well as a kind of ethical problem to take on. You could do both. So if you're budding entrepreneur, looking for an idea, fishing for an idea, you know, what kind of counsel would you give to, to some of your students, for instance, that might have a, uh, an idea to, to start a company, but don't necessarily know yet what, you know, what they want to do. They just know that they might want to do something in tech, or do you guys have a, you know, what would be a, some starting points that you might, might be able to share with a student coming out of college, for instance? Well, I'm a fellow at the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, um, so I advise many students on exactly that question. I could talk to you for a couple of hours about this, but I'll just give you two. I'll just give you two pointers. The first is make sure that you have a genuine problem that needs to be solved, a genuine problem that needs to be solved. And then really think about your understanding of the relationship between that problem your solution and the nature of the good. As I said, ethics can't be a prosthetic that you tack on afterward. It has to be built into the infrastructure of the, you know, the DNA of the way that you think and the way that you design. So I tell them, first of all, you know, really find that problem. Oftentimes the way to find that problem is to figure out what kind of positionality you have, what kind of perspective you offer that might be different from the mainstream. And then make sure it's a genuine problem. And then try and figure out, you know, what are the ethical questions that I need to ask here? 
I'll give you an example of a, a couple questions. What is the history of ideas or behind this problem? What historical wrongs might this solution be interacting with? Who does this serve? Who does this not serve? What kinds of designs are going to be humane and empathic? And who are going to be the end users for this? And how can we make sure that this product is accessible for as, as many of them as possible? You know, uh, I see a lot of technologies that make claims about making the world a better place. Silicon Valley has, as I've talked about elsewhere, a kind of distinct moral vision. In other words, people tend to talk about their ideas in Silicon Valley as though it was advancing some sort of moral utopian vision. But in fact, if I look at the number of technologies out there, uh, a number of them do not have that. So for example, I think about you know Grubhub or I think about Uber. Certainly these are technologies that are helpful. I don't think it's particularly helpful to think about them as kind of having a moral vision. So be clear to yourself about what kind of good you are trying to institute with your product. If it's a morally kind of envisioned product, that's fine. If it's not, that's also fine. But I think that having a very clear concept of the good and then having a very clear concept of how your product engages with that is really key from the get-go. That's great. I, I just wonder what the folks, that Juicero that's sitting in my closet, I, I, I don't know what the people were thinking of but when they came up with that. Wonderful counsel, Deb, and, and really excited to learn more about the work that you guys are doing at the Ethical Technology Initiative over at Cal Poly. But with that, I think we're just up at, at the end of our time here. So I did want to you know recap again. This has been the Reset Salon podcast. Uh, our guest, Deb Donick and this is Ed McGuire with Julie Albright and Brian Hayashi. We do want to highlight, put this in the show notes, uh, that Deb hosts the Technically Human podcast, and it sounds like she's got some amazing guests there. So do check that out. And also for anybody who else who's listening, do hit that like button and tell your friends to uh, to join us on our podcast. Send us questions, ideas, comments, feedback, one-liners, and and of course your presence on. Uh, at our, our various gatherings on uh, Clubhouse or in person is, is always, always deeply valued. So with that, I want to thank everybody for joining us. And, and, if, and Deb, thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us. It's just been fantastic. Oh, thanks so much for including me. This is a great conversation. 